I want to welcome everybody here this morning. And if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we have been walking through the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings. This morning we have made our way to Genesis chapter 11. And if anybody doesn't have a study guide this morning, if you'll throw up a quick hand, if I can get somebody in the front to maybe get a few extras to the back, just throw up a hand if you don't have one. While those are going out, I want, I want us to think about something for just a second. In the book of Revelation, uh, very early in that book, Jesus Christ is pictured in eternity. The snapshot of Jesus. And He is pictured as one who walks among the lampstands. And then the book of Revelation interprets that phrase just a few verses later. It calls the lampstands the churches. And so Jesus Christ, the exalted one, is pictured as the one who walks among the churches. And I want to remind us, as the church of Jesus, that, that that is true for us this morning, that the Lord Jesus indwells His people. We are in His temple, and the Lord walks among us. He, he is here. He, he inhabits His people. He inhabits His temple. And I want to remind us, when we, when we read the Gospels, I want to remind us, who, who are the ones that experience the power of Jesus Christ? It's not the ones that, that, are, that are passive and are taken by surprise. It's the ones like the old lady. And she's been bleeding almost her whole life and she's sick. And this old lady muscles through a crowd of people and lays hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a moment, she is healed. Or how about the blind beggar named Bartimaeus? Jesus is walking past him and he begins to scream, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And in fact, we're told that in many towns that Jesus visited, they did not experience His miracles. They did not experience His power because of unbelief. And I want unbelief to have no place among us this morning. I want us to go to God and I want us to ask the Lord Jesus to feed us with bread from His mouth. I want us to lay a hold of the Lord. Let's, let's ask Him to let light shine out of darkness Charles Spurgeon, when he used to preach, every time when he was going to the pulpit, he began to tell himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And I think we need to be encouraged in this direction, not only this week, but every single time we gather around the Word of God and the Word of God is open. Lord Jesus, do Your work in Your church. Open eyes today. This is what we want to go for. And I am begging you in the name of the Lord, that you would call on God and ask Him to do a work in our midst today. So let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You this morning, Lord Jesus, and we bow before You as our great and our exalted King. Lord, we belong to You, Lord Jesus. We are Yours twice, God, by creation and by redemption. You made us and You purchased us with Your blood and we are Yours, God. And our longing and our desire today is to honor You and to be like You, Lord Jesus. And we pray, God, that You would confront us with Yourself today from Your Word. God, that you wouldn't, that, that no manufacturing of this would happen, but that You would meet us on the pages of Scripture. God, and that You would reveal Yourself to us, Lord. God, we ask for Your power in Your church today. The power that only You can give, God. The power, God, that man can't share any glory in. God, that's what we ask for today, Lord. That You would feed us, God. That You would strengthen us. That You would strengthen Your church. That You would strengthen the souls of Your disciples. Encourage us 
God, remind us of how mighty You are and how for us You are today in Jesus. God, we ask for Your power, God, that You would be present to strike us, God, with Your sword, Lord. That You would strike us, that You would give us wounds of grace, God, that would cause us to see our sin and look to You. God, and we pray that You'd heal us today, that You'd bind us up with words of grace from Your mouth. God, feed us today, Lord. Our hope is in You. Our eyes are on You, Lord. God, help us today to behold Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want us to start this morning. I want us to read the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. I want everybody to turn there. And I want us to get, as many of you as as have Bibles in the room, I want us to get our eyes on these words. These are the most important words you're going to hear in the next hour. And I say this often, I say it again. These are words straight from the mouth of God. This is hot breath from the Holy One. This is God's Word to you. He didn't breathe it in the past. He breathes it out now. It is inspired by God without error. And so we get a chance to read this. We get a chance to read God's Word. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the Word of God. What we have been learning so far in the book of Genesis, if I were to just sum it up in a sentence, okay, is that the God of Genesis is the God of judgment and He's the God of grace. And you get, you get a heavy dose of this in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. He's God the righteous judge and He's God the gracious Redeemer. We've already seen this in God's judgment of Adam and Eve. We've already seen this in God's judgment of Cain. We've already seen this in the flood. Okay? And we're picking up right now in Genesis 11, we're on the backside of the flood that God just sent in the days of Noah. And that flood shows the same exact thing about God, that He's God the righteous judge and that He's God the gracious Redeemer. He's the righteous judge in the sense that He just punished all of wicked humanity except for eight people. And He's the gracious Redeemer in the sense that He provides an ark of salvation and Noah and his family are preserved through the waters of judgment. And this flood gives humanity a new start. It it provides a measure of cleansing 
uh, on earth. It doesn't, it doesn't change the heart of man, but it does provide a measure of cleansing on earth. This is a new start right after the flood. And so you're reading this and you're thinking, okay, God gets rid of, rid of all the problems and now this, this, this story of Scripture, it's about to get really, really good. Right? About to get really, really good because there's no way that they would go back to where they were before. Right? And that's the exact thing that we see over and over and over again in Scripture. In fact, the Old Testament is a summary of this. A story of judgment and a story of grace. A story of judgment and a story of grace. And another story of judgment and another story of grace. And all of this, you get to the end of the Old Testament and humanity still has not progressed morally. Not one inch. Not one inch. All this time passes and there's no... Moral improvement. And the Tower of Babel is a perfect example of this principle. It's a perfect example of this principle. I want you to think about this. Think about your part of that family, that original family. And you eyewitness the judgment of God. The global judgment of God. And you're huddled up in this ark of salvation for over a year. And you see the waters of God's judgment poured out on all the earth. Think about this. The Bible teaches that just a few years after that, after this global flood, the Bible teaches that all of humanity gathers together in rebellion against God. Against the God who just killed them all. They all gather together against Him in the Tower of Babel. And we think, how could they do this? How could they forget? Don't they know any better? This is what we think, right? Don't they know any better? God just killed them all. And this is another example. Okay, The Tower of Babel, it's a powerful revelation to us of our root problem. Our root problem is deeper than we know we shouldn't do something. It's a deeper problem than the intellectual thing. We have a root problem of rebellion and a root problem of sin against God. It's deeply rooted in us. What happened at Babel is the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden. It's just a repeat. And you see this in verse 5. God, when He comes down and He sees what He sees, it says that that structure in this city is built by the children of man. Now in Hebrew, that phrase is literally the sons of Adam. And that takes us straight back to the Garden of Eden. Just like Adam rose up in rebellion against God the King, his offspring are doing the same thing again. Okay? And that's the same story that repeats over and over in Scripture. The story of man in the Bible is the story of sin. It's the story of rebellion against God. So I want us to know this well. Okay? I want us to know this well about ourselves. Genesis 11 is relevant to us today. This is one of the oldest parts of God's Word. And I don't know anything in God's Word that's more relevant for us to hear. It's a living Word for us today. What was wrong with the world then is still what's wrong with the world now. And so what we want to ask God to do is that He would use His Word and that He would press on us and that He would speak to us. That He would speak to us. I want us all today. I want to give you a heads up. I want every person in this room to prepare to look in the mirror as we study through this story, I don't want you to be thinking about his, history only. I don't want you to be thinking about people in your family or, or wicked world rulers. I want you to think about yourself. I want us to prepare to see some nasty things about ourselves in the mirror. This is the diagnosis that has to happen in our life. We are sinful to the core. This story is going to show us that. 
Okay, and we want to see some nasty things about ourselves because only from that place can we experience the grace of God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He pours out His grace on the ones who have been humbled. And we want to ask God to do that in our midst this morning. Before we get to chapter 11, I want to make some quick comments of Genesis chapter 10. And Ryan did some of this last week. Genesis 10 is known as the table of nations in Scripture. And the first thing I want to say, and this is somewhat of an aside, but I want to go ahead and say this this morning. If you have any questions about this part, feel, or any part, but this part especially, feel free to talk to me about this later. But the first thing I want to mention about Genesis chapter 10 is that Genesis 10 is the table of nations, not the table of races. And this might be a new concept to most of you in this room, but the concept of multiple races of human beings is an unbiblical concept. It's rooted in evolution. It is not biblical. Okay, The word race, by definition, distinguishes different groups of human beings by biological genetic differences. That is unbiblical. Evolution teaches that the different races that scatter across planet earth, they come from different origins. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that all peoples descend from one common family. Okay? This, this is more than just semantics. This is a battleground between evolution and the Bible in our generation. There are not races. There are not different races of people. There is one race, the human race. The differences between us are not biological. We don't have different genetic material in us. We're made of the same stuff, came from the same family. The differences that we have are cultural and linguistic. That's why this is called the table of nations. These are ethnicities, not races. This is why Jesus gives the mission to His church. And He he does not say, go and make disciples of the races. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. And so Genesis chapter 10 is the rise of these ethnicities, these nations. Ethno-linguistic peoples that fill planet earth. And this genealogy is really unique in this sense that most of the time, genealogies trace a family line and you have individuals' names. This genealogy is nations, okay? And there's 70 of them, the table of nations. At two separate places in Genesis chapter 10, Moses breaks into this genealogy and he gives us, he stops the genealogy and he gives us details and they're important for us. So I want to spend just a minute before we get to our text talking about two specific breaks. And the first is in verse 25. It's not first chronologically, but it's the first I want to talk about. In verse 25, we are introduced to a man named Peleg. <coughs> For some reason, I've always liked to say that name, Peleg. It's just, it just rolls off there. Verse 25, Peleg. And we have this phrase in the middle of verse 25 that in his days, that means in his lifetime, the earth was divided. Now that's a very important little detail. It might not sound like it, but this division is a reference to the next chapter that we're about to read about. Okay, In the next chapter, God is going to divide the peoples and scatter them across planet earth. And so what this tells us is that this locates the story of the Tower of Babel in history. It gives us a time frame. And Peleg is the fifth down from Noah. He's the fifth down from Noah's generation. And what that means is that the Tower of Babel happens in this generation. 
And that's important for us for the next reason. The other break involves a man named Nimrod. Okay, let's read verses 8 through 12 of Genesis chapter 10. Listen closely. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Kala, Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. So you have Peleg and you have Nimrod. And if you study Genesis 10, you find out that Nimrod is one generation behind Peleg. He's the fourth down from Noah. Okay? He's alive for one generation before Peleg is, is, is alive, which means he is in his prime when we get to the next chapter in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. If you study Nimrod, you, Genesis 10, you also see that Nimrod is a descendant of the line of Ham. And Ryan covered this a little bit last week, but he is not a descendant of the line of Shem, that blessed line that's going to bring forth the Christ, that blessed line that is destined to reign and to rule. He's part of that cursed line, the cursed offspring of Ham. This is Nimrod. Nimrod's name means let us rebel. That's what it means. Now that's a really, really strange thing, right? I was thinking about how, how, how weird this is, okay? Uh, Josh Reagan and Christina, they had a baby, and you know what they named their firstborn? Elijah. It means something along the lines of the Lord is my God. That makes sense to us, right? Like you see a baby, you love this little baby, you think about what you want for him in life, and, and they say, I want the Lord to be his God, so his name is going to be Elijah, right? Perfect sense. This makes no sense, okay? That a father, what's going on here to make a father look at an infant and say, oh, I got a plan, I got a real good idea, let's name him, let us rebel, let's name him Nimrod. And what I want us to see, there's something happening here in Scripture. This family, this cursed line of Ham has had a curse pronounced on their family and they hate God for it. And you say, how do you know that? Because they name one of their kids, let us rebel. They look at this infant and they name him, let us rebel against God. And so Nimrod, from childhood... From childhood, there is a plan in place for Nimrod to lead an organized rebellion against God. This is a wicked, wicked, wicked man. From the very beginning, he has been groomed for this role. This is Nimrod. The Bible says that as time went on, he began to be the first mighty man on earth in the post-flood world. That word mighty man is a military term that describes a conqueror. 37 times in the Old Testament, that same Hebrew word is translated warrior. He is a warrior king. He is a mighty conqueror. This is Nimrod. The next phrase tells us that he was known for his ability to kill. He was a mighty hunter. He was really skilled at taking things life, at killing things. This is who he was. He expressed his rebellion, his hatred 
toward God, this world ruler. Over time, he began to attach peoples around him to the point to where he becomes the ruler of the world. And he begins to express his hatred and his rebellion to God by building cities. This is the exact same thing that Cain and his line did immediately after God sent a judgment on them in Genesis chapter 4. They were cursed by God and they began to build cities in their own name. He's doing the same thing here. And we get a snapshot into his heart. And this man is full of wickedness and he's full of hate towards God. He's chunking up cities and we're going to find out in the next chapter he's doing this for the glory of his own name. Nimrod's lust for greatness is shown in his city building. He has four cities. He has one. He builds three more. In the land of Shinar. He has four in the land of Shinar, but that's not enough. So he goes to the land of Assyria. Chunks up four more cities. He's a great world ruler. I want us to see that. What happens in the next chapter is not some little neighborhood of planet earth that goes rogue. This is all of humanity together that's about to rebel against God. And they're being led by this man named Nimrod. It's a theme in the book of Genesis. If you were to read this through, the wicked are the ones who build cities in Genesis. The righteous are the ones who build altars and they call on the name of the Lord. The wicked are known for building cities. The righteous are known for building altars in Genesis. This is a mark. We know that this man was wicked. He hated God. Finally, I want you to notice this last detail. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This world ruler, where it all started, is the city that we're about to read about in the next chapter. We're about to see Nimrod lead a, a global rebellion against God. And I want you to, this is, this is the framework that I want us to read this story in. The Tower of Babel is Nimrod's plan to unite the world under one government and take God's place. As the king of the earth. I'll say that one more time. The tower of Babel is Nimrod's plan. To unite the whole world under one government. And take God's place as the king of the earth. And if you ever wondered why we call stupid people Nimrod. This is why. This is about the dumbest thing for a human being to do. Is to rise up in rebellion against the king of glory. The one with all authority. Proverbs 21.30 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Only a Nimrod would attempt these things. Right? Only a Nimrod. And I want, when we're done giggling, and I understand that, I want us to look in the mirror. And when you hear about this man, maybe you're thinking in your mind of, you know, maybe modern examples of this man. You're thinking about ISIS or you're thinking about Hitler. And what I want to really encourage us to do is think about yourself. There is a piece of this man in every single one of us. And we're going to see that this morning. Let's start with the location of the rebellion in the first two verses of chapter 11. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east... They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, I know this is the first verse, okay? But you might not have known it. We've actually bumped into a significant difficulty in the book of Genesis. And the difficulty is this. In chapter 10, you have all humanity scattered speaking many different languages. In chapter 11, you have all humanity together speaking one language. 
and ten comes before eleven. And so the flaming liberals love to camp out and, and, and on things like this in God's Word and see, see, I told you. See, I told you that Bible has errors in it. And, and, and this, is, this is not what's happening here. Okay? Do you, do, do you really believe that Moses, careful writer, carefully compiling these things, and uh, the second to the last verse of chapter 10, he uses the plural form of languages. And then two verses later, he uses the singular. Do you really think that, that you just found out something for thousands of years that humanity didn't know? Okay? That this is an example of a, an error in God's Word. This is not what's happening here. Moses has organized chapter 10 and chapter 11 out of chronological order on purpose. Okay? This is the same thing that happens in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, you get a more detailed account of the creation of man. And it slips into Genesis chapter 1. Here, you get this detailed account of the Tower of Babel, but it slips back in chronologically to chapter 10. It's, it's laid out like this for a reason. Okay? So when, when you see it like that, chapter 11 is the bridge that gets us from the all nations of chapter 10 to the all nations blessing that God pronounces to Abraham in chapter 12. This is where we're going. This is how we got there. Okay? This is the context. All right. Humanity has been commanded by God in chapter 9 twice. They have been commanded by God to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And when you see them clustering together in the, in the plain of Shinar, this, this is an act of defiance and rebellion to God's command. God told them to scatter. They said, no, thank you. We're going to settle. We're going to bundle together and settle. This is rebellion. The central headquarters of this rebellion is in the land of Shinar. That is modern day Iraq. Okay? This is ISIS country where this story goes down. There's all kind of ruins that are still standing today from this area of Mesopotamia. And the Bible is rich with this history. <coughs> This is a real place that happens in a real time and God gives them a real judgment. And all the languages of the world that we know today spring from this story. This story, I mentioned this a minute ago. This is collective apostasy against God on a global scale. This is not, you know, you think about the, the whole church of God going rogue. This is what this is like. Collective apostasy. And I want us to see this as an attempt to found and establish a, an entire human civilization without God. A godless human city that spreads out into a godless human civilization. St. Augustine called this the city of man. This idea of man living, building, going through his life with zero to little reference to God. That's the city of man. The kingdom of this world. The driving motivation behind this rebellion is we call it today, we call it humanism. And if you don't know that word, I want you to know it well today. This is their motivation. They have humanistic motivations. I want you to listen to a definition of humanism. Humanism is a system of thought that gives supreme importance to humans rather than God. Humanism is a system of thought that gives supreme importance to humans rather than God. 
And I do want you to know that it is a religion. Humanism is a religion that deifies man. It is an attempt of man to be his own God. It is a religious system. It, it hides behind an intellectual veil of modern evolution and modern enlightenment, but it is a religion. It is man bowing down to man and seeking to be God. This ancient worldview that we see that moved them to build this city and build this tower, this is still the prevailing worldview in our world today. Humanism. Man is king instead of God. I want us to look closer at some of the characteristics of this humanistic rebellion. Look at verse 3 and 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I want us to lean in and know their sin well because this is our sin. And I'll keep saying that. This is a picture of us. This is a picture of you. And the first sin that I want to name, that I want us to look at is in verse 4. It's the sin of pride. And this is shown in verse 4. Look at what it says. They have a desire to make a name for themselves. Three times in verse 4. Us, ourselves, ourselves. This is man is king, man is God, doing for self, living for self, no reference for the things of God. That's the language that dominates prideful humanity. Me, I, us, ourselves, me. This is pride. They wanted a name. They wanted to be remembered. They wanted greatness in the earth. They desired a name, a reputation. When other people thought about them, they wanted people to think great thoughts about them. Or to say it a negative way. They hated the idea of living an anonymous life and dying and being forgotten. They hated, they couldn't stand that idea. They had a lust for greatness. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They longed to sing a song like Nebuchadnezzar's song. Listen to this in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? See the same thing there? Me, my, my glory, my greatness, my reputation. This is what they want. This is what they want. And before we're too hard on them, let's take a look at ourselves. Okay? I wonder if there's anybody in this room today. I need to be reminded of these things. I, I, I wonder about you. I wonder if there's anybody here today that needs to be reminded of the sinfulness of your own personal pursuit of greatness and making a name for yourself and this sinful ambition that dominates this humanistic life. Do you need to be reminded of this today? Different personality types, this can hit you in different ways. Don't make yourself feel better because you're not like somebody else. Your pursuit of greatness, your pursuit of fame might look different than somebody else across this room. This is wicked to the core. This is godless to the core. And this prideful infatuation with the praise of man is as old as Genesis chapter 11. And it still infects us. It still roots in our hearts today. The praise of man. Wanting to be highly esteemed by man. Wanting man to think that we are great. That we are exalted. 
The sin of pride will keep you from receiving the grace of God. I read that at the beginning. God resists the proud. Do you know that? You live your life and you do your thing and you're pursuing the glory of your own name, whether it's through career or through self-promotion or however this hits you, God resists the proud. He resists them. Do you know that this sin, that the love of human praise will keep someone from believing the gospel of Jesus? Listen to John 5.44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This will keep you from becoming a Christian. This sin will send you to hell for eternity. This infatuation with greatness for your own name. The love of human praise. And I want to warn us as Christians, you're my brothers and sisters. And you're not, most of you in this room, you're not headed for hell. You're headed for Christ. You're headed to be with Christ. But I want to remind you that this can hit you in, in really deceptive ways. These Christian forms of pride. And I'll remind every one of us today that Jesus walks into a conversation. He busts up a conversation between disciples. Between His apostles. And you know what He called them talking about? Who's the greatest? Which of us is the greatest? Who's the greatest among us? Do you find your mind lingering towards these things? Even Christian forms of these things that I want to be the greatest. I want to be remembered. I want to be known in the earth. When people think about me, I want them to think great things about me. These Christianized forms of pride that we tolerate. And I want to remind you, John the Baptist says this, He must increase and I must decrease. That's our attitude, our joy to let Jesus have all the reputation, all the honor, all the fame. Jeremiah 45.5 says, Do you seek great things for yourself? Do you? Do you seek great things for yourself? And then the Word of God says, Seek them not. Stop this. Cut this off. Uproot this. By the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, this pride has to be killed in us. This Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, this wickedness, it has to be gone from us. We must be free of this. This is pride. And their second sin, we're going to call it unbelief. Pride and unbelief. And you see this in verse 4. Their unbelief manifests in their fear of being scattered across the earth. Verse 4 says, Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole world. This is a really amazing thing if you think about it. That humanity is filled with enough arrogance and pride and enough bow up and we think we can do it. But in that phrase, you get a snapshot in the back of their mind, they're still scared. They got fears that are nagging them. They think they're so mighty and so strong, don't need God. And yet they have this fear of being scattered in the earth. And their fear is for security. It's real dangerous out there. We want to pull together and we want to be safe. And this is a manifestation of unbelief. They are not resting in God for their security. Their, their mindset, their humanistic mindset, all of their thoughts are dominated by how can I make me and mine safe on this earth? How can I secure security on this earth? No thoughts of how can I have eternal security? How can I be consumed with the things of eternity? No thoughts of God is the one who protects me. God is the one who provides for me. This is unbelief. And I wonder if anybody here today needs to hear this. I do. I need to be reminded of the wickedness of this sin. Okay? 
be infatuated with earthly security and all you think about is savings accounts and life insurance and, and stock options and whatever it is for you that you long for and you linger on, this is suicidal. It's suicidal. It's a manifestation of unbelief. A manifestation of a lack of trust in God to protect you and to care for you and to provide for you. Listen to God's Word, Isaiah 31.1 Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So you can trust in a city instead of trusting in God. And you can trust in Egyptian horses and chariots instead of trusting in God. And you can trust in whatever you uh, gravitate towards instead of trusting in God. And this is unbelief. This is unbelief that you seek security in things other than your God. It's unbelief. These are inward sins, pride and unbelief. And I want to show you in this story that they manifest themselves in, in outward expressions. The pride comes out and the unbelief comes out. The unbelief, their love of security, it's expressed in building this city. It's dangerous out there. Let's gather together. It'll be safer. Let's build a wall around us. It'll be real safe in this city. It's dangerous out there. It's an expression of their unbelief. And their pride, their love of man's praise is expressed in the building of this great tower. And so their message is this. Behind these city walls, we're going to be safe. And in, in, the, in this big tall tower, we are going to be great in the earth. This is pride and unbelief. And they erect this city and this tower. The central focus of this city is a tower. And the Word of God says with the tops... In the heavens. A tower with the tops in the heavens. And I want you to think about that. In primitive man. This manifestation of pride. Not only. okay, They're not content with, with spreading the city out on earth. They need to build these things into the heavens. Into the place where God dwells. Earth is not enough for them. They need to expand into the heavens. This is a manifestation of pride. And this tower. It's most likely, almost certainly, what's known as a ziggurat. And you can Google this. I put it on your study guide. These ziggurats are scattered all across ancient Mesopotamia. And what they are is they're temple towers erected to false gods all over Babylon, all over the kingdom of Babylon. And what this means is they, that not only is this tower tall and say, oh, look how tall it is. There are religious reasons for this tower being constructed. There are religious reasons for it. The Babylonians believed these towers to be the meeting places between God, the gods and men. And that's why almost every one of these towers that has been unearthed, almost every one of them, and you can look this up, is going to have a massive stairway that climbs into the heavens. And the picture of that is look at man. Look at the greatness of man. He is going up. And he is entering into the realm of the gods. And he is meeting with the gods. That's the ziggurat. This is the tower that they are chunking up. This is, this, this is probably the first of these towers that ever goes up on planet earth. So I want us to see this. This is a rebellion. But it has a religious thrust to it. I want you to see all of humanity gathered together. 
And they are making a forceful military advance into God's realm. God is the King of glory. And they are saying, we are great. We are exalted. Let's band together. Let's pile our strength. If there is a God, we're going to build a ladder to Him. If there is a God, we're going to build a stair. We're going to storm His lair. We're going to storm His dwelling. Because we are great in the earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. Do you see this? Advancing into God's realm. I want you to imagine them brick by brick. Burn bricks. Bitumen mortar. Asphalt mortar. They're building this tower one by one. And I want you to imagine them singing this song. And instead of the songs that we sing, glory to God in the highest, like the angels sing when Christ Jesus comes into the world. And they bust with praise, glory in the highest to God. I want you to imagine them singing as they're forcefully advancing into God's realm, the exact opposite. Glory to man in the highest. Great is man. Great are the offspring of Adam. This is humanism. Humanism. To the core, attempting to forcefully advance on God. One last thing here, the essence of their sin, and this is what needs to pierce us to the core. The essence of what they're doing wrong is they are trying to build, they're trying to live a life without God. They're building a great city. They're building a great tower. They're building a great civilization. And look how pretty it is. Look how mighty it is. Look how massive it is. But there's no God. They are a godless people. This is the warning for us. That you would have really great jobs. And really nice little put together families. And a nice little education. And very little problems. And your nice little western life. And you have no God. That's, that needs to pierce us. This godless Godless humanity. This godless civilization, we call it Babel in the story. But over 250 times in God's Word, the same Hebrew word is translated Babylon. Babel is Babylon. They're the same thing. This city where this happens at, called Babel in Genesis 11, is Babylon throughout the rest of the Bible. And in Revelation tells us that the only thing in Babylon that ever reached the heavens were their wickedness and their sins. Their tower never reached God. Listen to Revelation 18.5. Her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. That's God's judgment on Babylon. And she is called Babylon the whore, the mother of prostitutes. This becomes a theme in God's Word to the very end that this city and this story stands as a representation for us of godless, rebellious humanity. Every kingdom ruled by man, every kingdom of man that has ever risen and fought, this is the picture. Babylon, great as man, no God. And she is judged in the end. I want you to think about them. They're singing, they're building these bricks. They think it's about to be awesome. They're going to pile together. They're going to have more. They're going to have more security. And they're going to have a name. They think it's going to be great. They have these massive plans. Until they meet the opponent of their rebellion in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. This is awesome. They're singing. 
And they're saying, we're going to Him. We're making a stairway. We're storming heaven. We will be with God. And God says, I can't even see your little tower. I have to come down just to put my eyes on it. I am the mighty God. And you are puny man. And your works are not great in my sight. You are small and a worm in the sight of God. This is the picture. Now, what this doesn't mean is that the God of the Bible, He's all present. He's everywhere in all of His creation. And the God of the Bible is all seen. But this, this, this type language in Scripture is used for a reason to show us that God is mocking them. The Lord has to come down to see the tower that's supposed to be in the heavens. This is a word of mocking and a word of judgment. He is so exalted. God is so mighty that He has to condescend down to even see the greatest works that have ever existed in human civilization. He is the mighty God. God hates their tower. He hates it. Because that tower told lies about Him. He is the mighty, exalted Lord and that tower told some lies about God. You say, what are they? The fact that they're building a structure that they are going up to the heavens and forcefully advancing into God's realm shows us that they thought that God was a little g God. A really small God that was attainable by the works of man, by the efforts of man. If we muscle up, if we put all our efforts together, we can build to Him. We can advance to Him. But that is a lie about the God of Scripture. He is the mighty, exalted God. He inhabits eternity. Dwells in inapproachable light. You can't build a staircase to God. They're telling lies about this God. Listen to Job 11, 7, 7 and 8. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? That's a word of rebuke to us. If we ever think that our works and our efforts can attain to God, He's higher than the heavens. He is higher than the heavens. They had a low view of God and also a high view of themselves. That's humanism. When you see that low view of God and a high view of self, you don't think that bridging the gap is very hard. It's an easy thing. If man is exalted and God is down here, just a little bitty couple of staircase steps from God. But the truth is that God is above the heavens and man is to pray to the core. And the gap is an infinite chasm. It's an infinite chasm. Listen to Isaiah 40. This is how backwards they are. Isaiah 40, 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Grasshoppers. Most exalted man that has ever lived is like a bug in the eyes of God. He is like a grasshopper. And they are blind to this true view of God and they are blind to the true view of themselves. They should have saw themselves as grasshoppers before God. No way that we could ever go up there. Our only hope is that He come down because we will never be able to advance into His realm. Grasshoppers before God. But the lies about God don't stop there. I want you to think about this. Hypothetically, they never could have done it. But hypothetically, imagine that they could have built a staircase tower tall enough to go into God's realm and to forcefully advance into His presence. They believed that once they got there, that they were clean enough to stand before the holy God. That's a lie about God. It's a lie about Him. 
This is rebellious humanity. Humanism. High view of man, low view of God. They should have been saying this to one another. Listen, Isaiah 33.14 Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? That's what they should have been turning to each other and saying, of what if this does succeed? It's not looking too good for us if we do manage to get in His presence. He is everlasting burning. And who can dwell before this God? He is the Holy One. This is why God hates their tower. It tells lies about Him. This is the root of all false religion. And therefore, the Holy One, the Holy God, He comes down and He evaluates this rebellion in verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. Now that part of Scripture has disturbed me for a long time. I'm just being honest with you. I've read that. I haven't quite known what to do with that. What does that mean? Nothing's impossible for man. What's going on here? God says two things. This is only the beginning. This is not the end of what they're going to do. This is the beginning of what they're going to do. And then He says nothing is impossible with sinful man. Now when God says this, He speaks as the Creator, the King of the ends of the earth. He is not speaking as man's rival in these verses. And that was helpful for me to see that. God is not afraid of being rivaled by man. He is not intimidated by all, by by the sinfulness of man. I'll read Psalm 2, verse 2 through 4. This is how God always responds to rebellion. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's how nervous he is about a stairway going up into heaven. He laughs. He mocks them. He can't even see it. He's not speaking as a rival. He's speaking out of concern. This is not a threat to God. God is speaking out of concern for sinful man. And a good picture for us to drive this in is back in Genesis 6, right before God sends the flood. Humanity had gotten to a place, a point of no return. They, they had passed a point in their sinful rebellion against God that there was nothing else to do but for God to send a global judgment. And they're headed that way again. And God knows it. They're headed that same way again. And God knows it. And so He speaks this word in verse 7 and 9 to end this rebellion. He says, Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the world. So what does God do? He could have smoked them all. Do you all see that? He's already done it. He could have done it. He could have, if He didn't send a flood, He could have sent tornadoes, global tornadoes. He could have done whatever He wanted. He could have killed them all. But what does He do? He confuses their language. Just this little bitty thing. Confuse their language. You just try to imagine that. They're building these 
bricks in these towers and somebody says, hey, grab me a brick. And somebody says, what? Grab me a brick. What'd you say? I said, grab me a brick. I can't understand what you're saying. And after about, I don't know, two or three weeks of that, that, that great tower that, in that great city that was supposed to make them great in the earth, it's not real efficient anymore. They can't communicate with any, in, in each other anymore. And that one little thing that God does, that one little thing just makes them not be able to understand each other. And with that one little thing, He breaks their strongest weapon. And, and it's their sinful unity. And He confuses their language. And it has the immediate effect that it stops that rebellious city from, from expanding even more into a global kingdom, to a rebellious civilization. That's what it does immediately. But what does it do long term? That one little thing that God does immediately stops them, but long term, all the peoples of the earth spring from that moment. All the languages, and we know 6,500 of them at least in planet earth. All the ethno-linguistic peoples of the earth that we are tasked by Jesus to take the gospel to. Every single one of them spring out of this event and this moment. God judges these rebels. They get exactly what they feared. They feared we're going to be scattered. And God did exactly that. He scattered them. They got a name. But it wasn't the name that they were going for. Okay? They wanted a great name in the earth. They wanted to be known for their accomplishments. And all we know about this civilization is, is the word Babel. That their name is confusion. Nonsense. That, that they are pronounced confused over their pitiful attempt to rebel against God. The, 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 the Mesopotamians, the inhabitants of this area... The word Babylon means gate of the gods. And when they think about their city, they think, oh, that's the religious capital of the world. And then God renames this place Babel. That's a bunch of nonsense. This is God's judgment on rebellious humanity. And He tears down this wicked kingdom with a little word of judgment. He tears it down. And you look throughout history from here forward, every single kingdom of man has risen and it's fall to the ground and rose and fall to the ground. Is there one exception to that? Kingdoms rise and they fall to the ground. And God does the same thing over and over and over again. He judges the kingdoms of men. And the same thing that God does to nations and kingdoms, He does to individuals like us. You say, what do you mean? The Creator has forbidden us we are forbidden by God to live a godless life. We do not have permission to draw breath in God's world and to take His heartbeat and to take His provision and do whatever we want on planet earth. You are not forbidden. God's law forbids you to be godless. You are to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. You are to be consumed with His glory. You are to be overwhelmed with affection towards your God. Doing everything in thanks to His name. You're not for, you are not permitted to live in God's world and live a godless life. And God has promised, just like He came down in judgment on Babylon, He's coming down in judgment on all ungodliness. We know this from the Word of God. Jesus will descend on this earth in judgment and He will judge all who live a godless life. Listen to Jude, verse 14 and 15. Behold, 
the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. I want you to think about this word. Why did He not say unrighteous or filthy? Do you know this? Do you know this about yourself that you can be shot through with sin and eat up with sin and never never even dabble in pornography or never cheat on your spouse or never get hammered drunk? You, you can be shot through with sin by just breathing in God's world and never thinking about God. Godless. The godlessness. The ungodliness. That's what He's coming back to judge. Ungodliness, living all of your life without any thoughts of God, any reference to God. You do what you want to do, and if you are really honest with yourself, you don't think about Him. You don't think about Him. This is the warning. This is the warning. He's coming in judgment. This is the bad news of Scripture for the ungodly. And the bad news for every single one of us is that we are the ungodly ones. There is none among us who is free from these things. We are shot through with sin. That Nimrod, that wicked, rebellious ruler that that gets in the face of God and pursues his own greatness and his own name, you have that in you. You have a little Nimrod in you, every single one of you. Even the most sweetest of you that I love very much, you have sin. You have a sinful nature. You have a rebellious nature against God. It's called the flesh. God hates this. We are all ungodly. This is the bad news of Scripture. And the good news of Scripture is that God, His, His, His Word of judgment on Babel is not only judgment. It's the same thing that we've seen in other places in Genesis. It's a judgment, but it's also a grace. You say, what do you mean? He didn't kill them. That's grace. Amen. Next thing, He scatters nations. And you know what He does in the very next chapter of Scripture? He says, I'm about to send somebody to planet earth that's going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. I'm sending Jesus. I'm sending Jesus. In this judgment where nations rise, this is the stage that's set for what God unleashes on planet earth. The salvation of the ungodly through Jesus Christ. In Genesis 12, God promises Abraham an all nations blessing. Listen to it. Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Shall be blessed. We know something that they didn't know for a long time. We know that that all nations blessing, that offspring of Abraham is Jesus. We know that it's Jesus. Paul tells us this in Galatians 3 verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the one that's going to come to all these nations scattered on planet earth with blessing. With blessing. That is good news for ungodly rebels like me and you. That God's word of judgment was not His last word. He's unleashing salvation on the nations in Jesus. This promise to the nations that God promises to Abraham, it's initially experienced in Acts chapter 2 where they begin to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. And Jews 
from many different languages believe the word about the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit descends on believers. And they are now experiencing this all nations blessing that God has promised to Abraham is poured out on the church in, in Acts chapter 2. This is the same blessing that we are currently experiencing in the church of Jesus now. There was a church in every major city of the Roman Empire within 200 years of the death of Jesus Christ. His gospel has spread almost to the ends of the earth. We are in process of finishing His all nations mission. And we are gathered together today in, in, in the middle of Mississippi, but there is a church of Jesus scattered across this globe that worships Christ. This is an expression of this all nations blessing. God scatters the nations, but then He begins to pull them back into His kingdom. And then, in eternity... Blessing was started at Pentecost. We're experiencing the all nations blessing right now. And in eternity with Christ, the nations that were scattered are going to be gathered together again. This is unthinkable. We're going to be gathered together again with all the nations of the earth. And this time, we're not going to be singing the song of the praise of man. Listen to Revelations chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. After this I looked... And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the city going up that I want to be a part of. This is where we're headed into eternity with Christ. Every single one of us has the same sin that shows itself in this story. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ dies for the ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. Don't let this slide across your mind. The Christian gospel teaches... That the matchless King of glory, the one with all authority, who inhabits eternity, all the nations are like a drop in a bucket before King Jesus. And He comes down and condescends down in grace and He dies for His enemies. He dies, the highest of kings, dies for the ones who spit in His face. I cannot get over this. Do you see yourself in that? That He died for you in the midst of your ungodliness. Jesus did not die for a pretty bride. He did not. He died for a nasty, beat up bride. A rebellious bride. He died for us in the midst of our sins. This is grace from God. Grace from God. Romans 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In the midst of your ungodliness. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Not after we got put back together. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The highest of kings. Suffering in our place. I want you to see that. I want you to picture yourself stacking brick up, stacking brick up, trying to make a name for yourself and God coming down and staring you in the face. And in that moment, you know that He can crush you and instead He dies in your place. Rebellious ones spitting in His face. Glorious Gospel. 
God has offered not only to die for the ungodly, but He justifies the ungodly. That is the greatest news in all the universe. That the ones with the sinful record, the rebellious ones, can walk out of the courtroom of God covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Covered in the righteousness of Christ. Romans 4, 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not the one who stacks bricks up trying to make their way to God. If you want to do that with your life, if you want to earn God's salvation by your own works, by your own efforts, He will pay you wages and they will be death. You will be judged by God. But look at this glorious grace of the one who rests in the righteousness that God gives, the righteousness that is secured for us by the death of Jesus. His faith is counted as righteousness. This is a glorious gospel. I have no idea how many people, but there are myriads and myriads that have believed this message about what Jesus has done for them. And Jesus has made them new human beings. They are entirely new creatures, forgiven of all of their sins. This has been happening since the very beginning. God has been God the judge, and from the very beginning, He has been the Redeemer. He has been forgiving and calling rebellious man to dwell with Him to receive His salvation. Jesus is building an indestructible eternal city in the midst of the crumbling cities of man. You just saw an example of that. Everything fleshly is going down in ashes, but this church that Jesus is building, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It is indestructible and it is eternal. He is the only king who will never fall. And in his church, his city, is the only city that lasts into eternity. And all of life, and I mean this, all of life is about bowing before this king and being called into this eternal city. That's what you are here for. You're not here for yourself. You're here to bow before King Jesus. You're here to serve him and worship him and be with him forever. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know I want you to be reminded today, look what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Look at what He has done for us. Hebrews 11, verse 10. We are looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's where we're headed. We are headed to be with Christ in this indestructible city. And our prayer today ought to be everyone in Christ... Everyone in Christ in this room, our prayer today is on the way to that city, on the way to be with the Lord Jesus, that God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, by a work of grace within us, that He would beat every ounce of Babylon out of us. All this pride, all this unbelief, all this living for self, this has no place in our life. We are people who are going to be with Christ and we want to be like Jesus. We want to be like Him. We want to be humbled. And we want to trust God and we want to live for His glory. Be consumed with passion for Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 verse 16. God is not ashamed to be called their God. For He has prepared for them a city. And I'll leave you with this question. In eternity, where will you be? Will you be in the kingdom of man? 
that we just read about that goes up in ashes forever and ever and ever. And the smoke of the torment of Babylon never stops rising. Are you going to be in the kingdom of man in eternity? Or will you be in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus? Revelation chapter 21, verse 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. The good news of the Gospel. This is what we are to expect. We're not going up to God. He's coming down to us. His city, His indestructible city, His dwelling place is going to be with man. We're not going up to God. He's coming down to us just like He did. Just like He's already done. Salvation belongs to to our God. Hallelujah to His holy name. Hallelujah to His holy name. Let's pray. Lord, we worship You today as just who You've revealed Yourself to be, Lord. You are the God of judgment and You are the God of grace. God, help us to know You in each of these attributes. Rightly, Lord, help us to know it rightly. Help us to fear before you as the righteous judge. And help us to be overwhelmed before you as the God of all grace. Lord, protect us from intellectual, factual only knowledge. God, we pray that you pierce our hearts with your glory today. God, pierce our hearts. Do your work within us, Holy Spirit. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight. Make us like you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.